Hi, Jason, alcoholic. Um, just setting a timer so I don't go over. Uh, let's see. It's so great to be here. Um, thank you, before I forget, to uh, Raul and David for asking me to speak. Um, it's always an honor and a privilege to show up to Alcoholics Anonymous and share my experience, strength, and hope with uh, the program that really has uh, given me my life back and saved my life. Um, so I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity to do this. Um, and uh, it's great to be here. Uh, if you're new, uh, you're like in the right place. You know, sobriety uh, saved my life. Um, so if you're new and you're not sure if this is for you or if you're not sure if, uh, you know, this journey is, uh, is right, uh, you know, just stick around, you know, they say wait for the miracle to happen, you know, let us love you until you can love yourself, and um, it takes time, and it takes patience, and um, I just encourage each of you to uh, wait around for that miracle to happen, because uh, it does happen, and everyone's on their own time frame, but uh, you got to stick around for it to happen, so uh, if anything, I hope you hear that. Um, Western Roundup Living Sober is definitely, um, you know, I attended my first Living Sober in the early 2000s when it was over at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium, and I had no teeth, and I had a lot of hair, and it's really crazy how my sobriety has come full circle, because now I have no hair, but a full set of teeth, um, and that's only because I've stayed sober all these years. Um, yeah, I know. So, uh, yeah, it's just uh, such an honor to be here, like I said. And, you know, just some stats. My sobriety date is uh, May 16th of 2000. So uh, I've been sober for a little over 18 years. I uh, was 23 when I got sober, and I'm 41 now. So uh, I've been sober pretty much my entire adult life. Um, I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step meetings. So this is really all I know. Um, you know, I've learned everything about life here. I've learned everything about growing up as an adult. I've learned everything about being a gay man and, and how to do that uh, respectfully and with honor and grace and dignity. I've learned uh, here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, before I got sober, that was not the case. And um, I'll get into that. But uh, yeah, so my sobriety date is May 16th, 2000. Um, that was the day that my life changed forever. I, um, I had no intention of getting sober. Um, that was the day the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the manipulating, the using others, all that stopped. Uh, that was the day that the running stopped. Um, and I mean that uh, literally. I was actually running up Castro Street from the police and uh, they had to stop me because um, I was running from them. Um, so, you know, I just, I'm just full of gratitude for my life today. Um, I'll really just stick to the format because it just kind of helps me stay uh, on the path of uh, what it was like, what happened, and what my life is like now. Um, let's see, I'm from the East Coast. Um, I so connected with John last night when he was sharing about being plopped in a family and not feeling like you fit in and not feeling like you belonged and um, I so felt like that. I mean, I grew up in Pasadena, Maryland and I just never felt like I was supposed to be there and um, I didn't connect with my brothers and, you know, I had this secret my whole life that I was gay and, you know, this was in the 70s and the 80s and 
it wasn't like it is now. You know, there's not all these resources and all these tools and all these places you can go. It was just kind of something I, I kind of knew as I was growing up. And uh, I had no one to talk to. And I had, uh, you know, I was scared to talk to my family. And I was scared to tell anyone at school. And I got teased about it. And um, it's just something that I just held in. I never really dealt with. Um, Long before I started drinking and using drugs, I, I had tons of behaviors that uh, started to pop up through childhood. Um, you know, I started to lie. Uh, I started to manipulate people. You know, I started to, uh, to one of my big things was fear of confrontation. Um, I've, I always hated when, you know, when I was presented with the option of telling the truth or, you know, lying, I would always choose to lie because it was just easier for me to avoid consequences and to avoid the truth. And um, that's something that uh, served me way into my addiction, way into my using, um, and that I held on to till the bitter, you know, till I had to let that go. Uh, so here I am in Maryland, you know, and uh, I, my, my family, uh, there's no real alcoholism or drug addiction in my family. I mean, I come from a pretty middle-class family. Um, I had, you know, I don't really recall my first drink. I know that there was like holiday parties or Christmas parties where I would take a sip of my dad's beer. And um, I don't really have like a recollection of like the first drink or how that affected me. But um, I do know I did that growing up. And I do know that um, I had this secret all through my childhood. And my parents got divorced when I was 10. And um, you know, that was really traumatizing to me. I was always a sensitive kid. I always wore my feelings on, you know, on my heart. And you could always see what was going on with me. And uh, I don't know, that really hurt me. And, and, and what happened is they had joint custody. So I would have to spend a week at my mom's house. And then on Sunday at 7, I would have to go to my dad's house. And they lived about a mile apart. So every Sunday at 7, I would pack a bag and go back to my other parent. And then back the next week. And I did that all through uh, pretty much uh, middle school and into high school. Um, and, you know, that, that was really painful for me, just the circumstances of their divorce and... Um, I don't know, I held a lot of resentment for a lot of years, you know, towards my mom about the divorce and uh, to my stepdad. And, uh, you know, I carried that stuff, you know, through my addiction. And it wasn't until I got sober I got to work on a lot of uh, those issues. And I let that go. And it was so freeing to be able to let that go, you know, years and years later. Um, so, yeah, so I'm in Maryland um, going through school, you know, um, Occasionally getting into trouble for uh, lying. Lying was my big thing. You know, I'd lie when, you know, I'd get a report card and I'd change the grade because I changed a D to a B, um, and I'd get caught and then I'd lie and then you know I'd have consequences and you know I did stuff like that all the time. Um, for me, my drinking and uh, using really started when I was graduating high school. Um, I worked at the Sizzler in Glen Burnie, Maryland. And uh, there was a gay couple that worked there. Their names were John and Sean, and they were both waiters. And uh, one of them worked at a gay bar in Baltimore City. And uh, I, you know, I really don't know what possessed me, because um, I did not know any gay men or women at 17. Um, I had never had any type of, like, gay encounter. Like, I'd never had sex with another, you know, it was just, I don't know what possessed me, but I, I knew which bar that he worked at, and um, something possessed me to drive into Baltimore one night after work and show up at this bar that he worked at 
And um, it was so stupid. I was like, oh, you work here? Like, I had no idea. Like, I was just like in the neighborhood. And, um, and he let me in, you know? He let me in. And um, I'll never forget my first experience in a gay bar. I was completely, I was so scared. I saw men holding hands and women holding hands and being affectionate to each other. And I'd never seen that anywhere my whole life. And it was so scary. And um, I left. I mean, I didn't stay long and I left. But um, like drinking, it planted a seed in my brain. And I wanted to go back. Um, and I did. I started going back. And... Um, you know, I don't know where I learned some of this stuff I learned at 17. It's, it's just crazy to me. But I would get off work, and I'd have my name tag and my Sizzler uniform on, and I would drive into Baltimore, and I would pop open my trunk when I got to Baltimore, and I would take my apron off, and I would pull my uh, khakis down, and I, I had made these Daisy Dukes at home. I know. And they were so short, like the pockets stuck out at the bottom. And um, I would go into the bars in Baltimore, and I would drink, and I would uh, smoke, and I started shooting pool. And, um, you know, then I started going out to the parking lot with people, you know, when I would, after I'd been drinking for a while. And, uh, you know, I was just started to like engage in all this like kind of like bar behavior um, that served me no purpose at 17. But um, it was just, it was also so attractive to me. Um, yeah, so I started going out. And at this point, I lived with my dad full-time. I lived at my dad's house. And, uh, you know, I started having consequences very early on. I started to uh, miss curfew and come home after curfew. Uh, I would come home and, like, I'd have a shoe in the yard, like, the next morning and not know, like, how my shoe got in the, by the street. And uh, I would, like, throw up on the way home. And I had all these consequences, but, you know, it didn't, it never occurred to me that it was drinking. I just, it just occurred to me like, oh, it was just a bad night. Um, I just made all these excuses. So uh, what happened is I stopped getting let in the bars in Baltimore. I would basically get drunk and I would tell people, oh, I'm only 17. And then one by one, the bars stopped letting me in. And uh, so I pretty much got blacklisted from the city of Baltimore. Um, and, you know, I mean, any length, right? So what I would start doing is driving to D.C. because Washington, D.C. is just like 45 minutes the other direction. And uh, I pretty much did the same thing there. I would start going to the bars, I would drink, I would race home. Um, and it was just like this cycle. And I did that, you know, 17, 18. Um, eventually reached a boiling point at home where, um, where I just, you know, I couldn't really... I couldn't hide the fact that I was gay anymore. I was starting, I mean, I, I wrecked my car one night racing home from DC. My dad had to come to the hospital and unfortunately I didn't have time to put the apron and the khakis back on. And I was wearing my Daisy Dukes when my dad had to come to the hospital. So the gig was kind of up on the, on the, you know, I was gay part. So I was, uh, you know, like I said, I was always afraid to, uh, you know, of confrontation. Uh, instead of just looking at that head-on and dealing with it, um, you know, I met a guy in D.C., and uh, we met at a bar, and he asked me to come live with him, and, uh, you know, that was the easier, softer way for me. It was much easier for me just to pack up and go live with this guy than to, like, tell my parents I was gay and, uh, you know, walk through that. So uh, I did. I moved to D.C., and I got a job there, and it was more of the same. It was drinking, um, fighting, arguing, you know, over and over and over again. And uh, a few months later, the guy told me he was moving to California, and he asked me if I'd move to California with him. 
And uh, once again, I was like, you know, here's this guy I just met. I was in love. I didn't know. I'd never been in a relationship. And uh, I, you know, thought of going back to my parents' house scared me. So I was like, yes, I'll move to California with you. So, I mean, at 18, I moved uh, from D.C. to California. And that's how I ended up uh, out here in California. And um, let's see. Uh, we lived in Alameda when we first moved here. And I got a job at Applebee's, which I think is still there in Alameda. And I worked at the Applebee's there. And uh, I don't know, the drinking kind of subsided at that point. You know, I was in a relationship and I worked and it just kind of like did that for about a year. And then uh, we eventually broke up. And uh, the circumstances around our relationship break ending were that he was HIV positive and had lied about his HIV status and I had found out. And when I confronted him, basically he couldn't deal with the fact that I had found out and had confronted him. So uh, basically the relationship just kind of absolved. And here I was at 18 in Alameda uh, with like the worst thing, you know, the, what I consider the, at that time the worst thing that could have happened, you know, possibly being HIV positive. Um, this was the first relationship I'd ever had. This was like everything I thought, you know, everyone would say would happen when I moved out here. And um, I probably should have just packed up and moved home at that point, you know, in retrospect, um, and saved myself a lot of trouble and a lot of damage. Um, but, uh, you know, I had this old thing drinking that, you know, I, I'd been relying on. And, uh, and what I ended up doing was just hitting the bars. You know, I ended up going out and drinking, and I drank at him, and I drank at the HIV, and I drank because I was scared, and I drank because I couldn't deal with my reality, and I drank because... Uh, I couldn't talk to my parents, and, and I drank out all these things, and my life progressively just kept getting uh, worse and worse and worse. Um, eventually, I moved from Alameda to San Francisco, and um, I'll be dating myself a little here, but I, uh, my first job here, I used to work at the, uh, the patio cafe when it was still the patio, um, and I worked there, and I waited tables there, and I did, you know, it was just a group of us. We would hang out, work all day, work hard, and then we'd go to the Midnight Sun, and we would drink at the Midnight Sun, and then I'd somehow stumble over to the cafe, and then at some point at night, I would, like, make it home. Um, let's see. Uh, I eventually got kicked. I got kicked out of Orphan Andy's. They wouldn't serve me anymore. I would uh, order food from there and go home, and uh, I always got chicken fried steak and eggs. And uh, I would get home and I would start eating it and then I would pass out and then I would wake up the next morning and have chicken fried steak all over like my face from rolling in it at night. And I did that so often and so much they like stopped letting me in. So um, did that and uh, yeah, life kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, eventually I started, uh, I started doing drugs and uh, what I'll say about my experience with drugs is drugs really um, just, you know, any bottom that I thought I wouldn't do or anything that I, I had set a limit, you know, I will never do that. Um, this is something I'll never compromise on. Uh, drugs just let me lower that bar and it made those things acceptable. And uh, I started to do things that, uh, you know, I was definitely not um, aligned with, but in the moment it was okay. Uh, so, yeah, I started hanging out with uh, all kinds of shady people and doing things. Um, I lived with a guy who was, uh, he had a business out of his apartment. He was uh, cashing checks and writing checks out of his apartment. And uh, he basically would give me, he would print me a check and I would go to the check cashing store and print them for him and give him half the money. And then uh, we would split the money and uh, I got arrested for that. I got arrested for grand theft. 
And that first time I was in jail, I remember uh, joining that like foxhole prayer, you know, where you're like, please God, you know, uh, I will never drink again. I will never use drugs again if uh, you just let me out of jail. If I can just get out of here, I would never do that again. I'll never engage in this behavior. And uh, I got out the next day, and uh, you know, the first thing I did was go to the bar and went to the dealer's house and started drinking and using. It was like none of those prayers meant anything. It was like, uh, you know, it was just I'd forgotten all about it. Um, I continued to uh, use the next few months. Uh, my bottom uh, happened uh, probably in May of 2000. I, there was a girl that I uh, was running with, and one day when I knew she was at work, uh, she had some stuff of mine in her apartment, and I knew she was at work, and I broke into her apartment. I crawled through the kitchen window, and I was going to get my uh, clothes back and get my book bag back, and you know, I was going to prove her you know, that she couldn't keep my stuff from me, and you know, I was full of all this anger and rage, and so I broke into her apartment, and I'm standing in the kitchen where I'd broken in, and I noticed that like, all of the magnets on the refrigerator, like, all, you know, they all have photos and all, and none of them are of her. And I had, like, basically, she had moved out months ago, and I didn't know. So I had broken into someone's apartment that was a complete stranger. Um, and I found myself standing uh, in this apartment. And, uh, you know, I was high and drunk and uh, grabbed some money and grabbed some stuff out of the apartment and uh, went to the store and sold it. And, uh, you know, really didn't think, you know, consequences meant nothing. So I used my own ID and... Uh, I had another, you know, warrant put out for my arrest for that. And uh, then a few months later, I was arrested the second time. And uh, that second time I was arrested was when uh, definitely the gig was up. There was no more uh, praying to my higher power. There was no more, uh, you know, if I just do the right thing, please let me out. I was facing three years in prison. And uh, the only way that I could uh, serve my uh, t sentence was if I got accepted into a... Uh, into a program in San Francisco. So uh, that began my uh, journey in recovery. So um, I was in so much denial when I got sober, or when I was in jail. Um, one, I felt like I just kind of like woke up and I couldn't believe the damage I'd done to my life. Um, I was facing three years, um, I was missing teeth, uh, I had done like all this physical damage, I'd, I'd done all this damage to my family, and um, I remember, I mean, I was in such denial, I was writing letters to my mom when I was in jail saying, you know, uh, things are good, I moved into a new, a new place. Um, you know, I made some really nice friends. And I didn't realize when I was sending these letters to my mom that they were stamping inmate mail on each letter as it went out. So she was getting these letters knowing that I was full of shit and knowing that I was in jail. And I mean, I just... You know, it was like, I still couldn't be honest with myself. I still couldn't face, like, what I'd done. And, um, you know, so I, basically what happened is they said, you have to write to programs in San Francisco and get into a treatment center. So I did. I started, I started writing letters only like the... Um, like, like you can when you're, you know, that desperate. And I started writing letters and calling places, and uh, one finally came into jail, and they did an intake. And um, my first uh, program was a, a behavior modification program. And so I got out of jail, and I got sent right to the program. And that program was all about uh, changing the behaviors that lead you to drink and use drugs. And I was so full of street behavior and uh, behavior that, 
serve me no purpose in sobriety, like stealing and lying and manipulating and using others and all that stuff that I learned on the street. And um, it forced me to address uh, those behaviors head on. And uh, that program really forced me also to, uh, to look at my health. You know, my health was something that I used over for a long time. I could not uh, look at the possibility that I was HIV positive. Um, when I was out there, and it, and it forced me to, to walk through that um, with dignity and grace and go get tested and find out my status, learn how to take care of my health. Um, and I did that there, and I'm so grateful to that program for, uh, for everything they taught me. And I did a year in that program um, in Hayes Valley. And uh, that program stopped working after about a year um, for me. I mean, I did, I did my year, which was my commitment, and I didn't really have an exit plan. But uh, I mean, I was on this road of recovery now. My life was starting, you know, physically I was starting to get better. I was seeing the relationships with my family change. Um, I'd started addressing my health. Um, so I went to the Salvation Army uh, program over on 30th and Mission. And uh, I did six months at that program. And that program is where I got introduced to uh, 12 Steps and to Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, that is where I was able to start getting out and going to Castro meetings and uh, start meeting people like me who were you know, young and trying to get sober at the time uh, and set me up for my journey uh, in AA. And um, I was so scared when I came to uh, AA because at this point I had like two years sober, but everyone thought I was a newcomer because I'd been in jail and then I'd been in this other program. So it was, you know, it took a while to get acclimated. And, um, you know, my first meeting I went to, I remember I, I met someone that I used to run with and they introduced me to someone who became my sponsor for like 15 years. And uh, God, there was so much work that had to be done. I was... I thought I knew so much, but I really knew nothing. And um, you know, there was so much I had to learn about staying sober and about getting out of my own way and about uh, putting others first and being of service. And um, that's all stuff I learned here. You know, I, I was terrified of people uh, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you know, Monica used to have those Christmas parties at her house uh, every Christmas for those that have been around for a while. And I remember I used to go to those parties and uh, I would sit in the room with the coats because uh, that's where I thought I belonged. And I felt more comfortable sitting in the room with a bunch of coats than I did like out talking to people out at the party. And um, it wasn't until I started joining the steps and uh, gaining self-esteem and doing esteemable acts that I was able to you know, come out of the coat room and join the party. Um, and that's been my experience ever since. Um, my first commitment in Alcoholics Anonymous was a greeting commitment. I, you know, I was terrified of people, like I said, and my sponsor told me, um, you know, you should get a greeting commitment at this meeting because I think it'll really help you with your fear of people. And, uh, and it did, you know. Um, there was this guy, I can't remember who it was, but there was a guy at the meeting that was hugging people every week and I would be so resentful of him and I would be like, God, he knows everyone, I don't like him, he's just, everyone loves him and my sponsor's like, just give it time, just give it time, get a greeting commitment. And I got a greeting commitment and six months later, you know, I was that person that was standing at the door and everyone coming in and out of the meeting knew my name and was hugging me and, uh, you know, so that's when I really started to see the value of service and how that can affect your sobriety. Um, I started on a journey with the steps. You know, the steps are, have changed me tremendously. Um, they've changed the way that, you know, I look at myself. I mean, the steps have been seriously a journey of like self-love, self-discovery, um, like, you know, uh, 
walking through fear, um, dealing with just uh, confrontation head on, not being able to run from things any longer, um, turning things over. I mean, all that stuff that I learned here and then through the steps. Um, I think some of the most powerful steps for me have been, oh wow, um, step three, definitely, uh, you know, turning things over. You know, there have been so many things in sobriety I've had to turn over and get out of my own way. Um, the eighth and ninth step, uh, you know, uh, making uh, amends for things that I've done. I, uh, that's been so powerful because I was always so scared of people. And I really, there was no way to do the ninth step and be scared of people. You had to kind of walk through that and deal with that. And I dealt with that head on. Um, when I had five years of sobriety, I moved to New York. Um, it was a dream of mine to pursue a career in fashion. And I went to, uh, I went to school here and I got a degree in fashion design. And I moved to New York to, to be a fashion designer. And, and that dream didn't really work out, but I did stay in New York for five years, and I had a wonderful experience there, and that was something that my sponsor pushed me to do. He was like, do it while you're young. Do it while you can. Do it, you know, you don't want any regrets when you're older. Like, do it now, and uh, he encouraged me to do that, and I did that, and I'm so grateful I did that, and I moved back here in 2011, and uh, that was interesting. It was like being a newcomer again, because I'd been gone for five years, and there were all these people that were new, and, uh, you know, I really had to do all the those things that I learned when I was a newcomer, like reach out my hand, be of service, uh, you know, hang out with newcomers, uh, speak up at meetings, get commitments. I had to do all that stuff again because people didn't know who I was. I'd been gone for a number of years. Um, and that was all stuff I learned here. Um, and what my life is like today, um, it's pretty fucking amazing. I mean, from where I came from. Um, I mean, I will say sobriety is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It is the thing that has required like the most work, the most attention, the most um, patience. It's the thing that has like, I mean, nothing in my life can compare to what I've had to put into sobriety. You know, there's no relationship. There's, you know, I had to put my sobriety before my family. I've had to put it before friends. I put it before my work. I put it before uh, my ego and things I want to do. Um, you know, it's really had to become the most important thing in my life. Um, and I wouldn't have it any other way because um, I'm not someone who really half measures don't really work for me. If I can do something halfway, I mean, I'll find a way to not do it. So um, sobriety is not really something that I feel I can uh, curtail around or do halfway or do half measures. It's something that I really have to give my uh, undivided attention to and, and really put the work into it to get the results. Um, you know, and... I always thought my addiction was only affecting me. Um, you know, I always thought, well, it's me who's going to go to jail. It's me who's going to get in trouble. It's me who, uh, you know, is going to pay the consequence. But, you know, my sobriety affected so many people. You know, it affected my parents and my siblings. It affected my coworkers. It affected my friends. And, um, you know, it's interesting how being sober this long, I can see um, how my sobriety has affected the people, these people the same way. You know, I've got this point of reference where now I can see that, wow, being 18 years sober affects my family, it affects my parents, it affects my employers, it affects my friends. Um, and that's such a wonderful, wonderful gift to, uh, to have and to be able to have that context for how this works. Um, 
really the steps that I'm in heavy are 10, 11, and 12. Um, you know, I've done the steps a couple times, and it's really for me about uh, staying on top of my character defects and being honest with myself. And it's like, you know, the shit, the, the work's never done. I hate hearing that because I think part of me wishes maybe one day it would be done, but uh, it really isn't. It's like I have to keep working at it and keep evolving. Um, and, you know, I think I'll just close with uh, there's something in uh, step 12 and the 12 and 12 that uh, kind of just sums up the, um, it kind of just sums up how I feel about my recovery right now. Um, and that says, uh, still more wonderful is the feeling that we do not have to be specially distinguished among our fellows in order to be useful and profoundly happy. Not many of us can be leaders of prominence, nor do we wish to be. Service gladly rendered, obligations squarely met, troubles well accepted or solved with God's help, the knowledge that at home or in the world outside we are partners in a common effort, the well-understood fact that in God's sight all human beings are important, the proof that love freely surely brings a free, full return, the certainty that we are no longer isolated and alone in self-constructed prisons, the surety that we no longer need to be square pegs and round holes, but can fit and belong in God's scheme of things. These are the permanent and legitimate satisfactions of right living for which no amount of pomp and circumstance, no heap of material possessions could possibly be substitutes. True ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. That is how I feel about my recovery. I want to thank everyone for um, helping me stay sober. I definitely have not done this alone. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. <laughs>